Good morning. It's Wednesday, June 16th. I'm Shamita Basu. And I'm Duarte Geraldino. This is Apple News Today. Each morning, hear about some of the most fascinating stories in the news and how the world's best journalists are covering them. Today, President Biden meets with Russian President Vladimir Putin. This will be Biden's first time meeting with the Russian leader since he took office. The summit in Geneva is expected to go on for hours. We'll have coverage throughout the day on Apple News. Israel launched airstrikes in Gaza today. Israel took aim at Hamas sites in Gaza after incendiary balloons were launched from this area. These are the first attacks since last month's ceasefire. This latest violence is an early test for Israel's Prime Minister Naftali Bennett. It's also a reminder to President Biden. This situation is volatile. LA Times reporters in Jerusalem and Washington took a look at what the new Israeli administration means for U.S. interests in the area. Middle East experts say the Biden administration is relieved to see anyone but Netanyahu in charge. He had a testy relationship with Obama and went on to embrace Trump, which signaled a shift. Instead of relying on the long-held bipartisan support for Israel in American politics, Netanyahu aimed his message at the Republican right. Trump's loss made that path a riskier one. So now there's new leadership, but... It's not like the new Israeli prime minister is in line with Biden's vision. He comes from a right-wing party that's against a Palestinian state or any deal with Iran. Bennett's key trait? He's not Netanyahu. This fresh leadership has U.S. and Israeli political observers predicting both countries will develop a better relationship. That's not to say anyone's expecting quick progress. Israel's new prime minister is held up by a coalition with an unusual mix of parties representing left, right and center views. They haven't agreed on much other than the desire to knock out Netanyahu. The U.S. wants a nuclear deal with Iran, and Israel can play a key role in that. Now the question is whether new faces around the table will be enough to make progress on this and other tricky issues in the region. There was a time when the phrase critical race theory was rarely heard outside of university circles. It refers to the academic study of systemic racism. But something changed in the last year or so. You now hear the phrase debated on cable news shows, thrown around in angry social media posts, even used by national politicians. NBC News looks at how critical race theory became the center of a political firestorm. The reporters for this piece... They interviewed conservative activists who say this academic framework shouldn't be taught in public schools. And the thing is, local school districts say they're not teaching it. But critical race theory has become sort of a generic term for whatever these activists are fighting against, which includes teaching children about race and gender equity. It's gotten to the point where critical race theory now comes up in local school board meetings, These are typically really dull proceedings, and they're now being interrupted by fiery speeches from protesters and campaigns to remove school board members. And heavy hitters in the GOP, they are seeing an opportunity here. According to NBC News, they want to turn this passion at a local level into a national campaign. Former Trump advisor Steve Bannon praised the fight against school boards, 
Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is also backing the movement. These activist networks have been successful in making noise, raising money, and getting attention in conservative media. But it's not clear how much popular support they have. NBC profiles one community in Maine where critical race theory became a hot issue in the local school board elections. Conservative parents targeted one board member and called for her to resign. But she won re-election. The school superintendent said he was surprised by how much hate can be generated by a small group of people. So let me know if this sounds familiar. You're locked down, spending a lot more time at home, sitting on your sofa, and you realize you've had this couch for years, and then inspiration strikes. You go online and splurge on a brand new one. Now you're vaccinated, lockdowns are starting to end, but that wonderful sofa you paid for six months ago, you still don't have it. It still hasn't arrived. The design magazine House Beautiful explains why furniture delays are so bad right now. And it involves everything from, of course, the pandemic to global trade to weather to the simple anatomical fact that what our butts need from couches and what our backs need from couches are two very different things. We'll explain that more in a minute. First, when you tap buy on a sofa, you go to the back of a line in a very complex process. Even though you may not be ordering a fancy custom piece, most quality sofas have to be built for you. There are giant warehouses with sofas finished and just ready to ship. Once companies get your order, workers have to put the wood and the parts and the fabric all together for you. But right now, they can't find the wood because there are lumber shortages. Is your dream sofa covered with silky smooth fabric, a sumptuous leather? All of those materials are scarce right now because manufacturers in places like Belgium, India, and Italy have lost months of production time because of COVID. And don't forget about the butts and backs. Furniture designers, they think long and hard about them. You sit on a soft cushion, right? But you lean back on a firm one. The difference is the foam, which comes in different densities. Foams are incredibly tough to find right now. That's in part because of the big ice storm in February. Texas and Louisiana are key parts of the foam supply chain. And when the Gulf region froze, the foam industry froze along with it. So if you're eager to change out your couch sometime this year, you might want to start shopping today. Or better, yesterday. The U.S. track and field trials for the Olympics start on Friday. A lot of runners will be wearing Nikes. What's strange is that even many of the runners who have sponsorship deals with other shoe brands are wearing Nikes. The latest track shoe is believed to be so fast that runners are begging to wear it. And the Wall Street Journal reports competing shoe brands are allowing it, not wanting their runners to miss a chance at making the Olympics. Keep in mind, when a runner is racing, she's spending a lot of energy. These shoes use a new super light foam, and they're also designed with a special plate in them. That combination is thought to return more energy to the runner as she's running. The track world doesn't agree on how much the shoes can affect speed. And it is true, other factors could be having an impact. Still, when you consider how fast some of these runners wearing these shoes reach the finish line, you just can't deny how impressive their numbers are. In less than a year, 
runners wearing Nike Super Spikes have broken multiple world records. Just this month, Dutch runner Sifan Hassan beat the women's 10,000-meter record. Two days later, Ethiopian runner Letesabet Gide shattered that time. Both of those women were running in Nikes. These super spikes, they're bringing up questions of fairness. Some people worry the winners might not be the people with the most talent, but rather the runners with the best shoes. Other sports also had to deal with this. A while back, high-tech swimsuits were banned. But track and field leaders, they're embracing this new technology. And right now, Nike has some hot tech. So when you look at the feet of top runners, you're likely to see a lot of those swooshes. You can find all these stories and more in the Apple News app. And while you're there, check out some of our audio stories. We'll talk with you again tomorrow. Tomorrow.